You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Exodus. Deliverance. A way out. When the Israelites were captive to a bondage forged by human hands, God delivers. When the idolatry of their human hearts was louder than the hunger after their God, God is faithful. When God's people forfeited the blessings of his divine presence, God restores relationship. At the moment, God meets with Moses on the mountaintop. He has already saved them. God redeems and brings his people into freedom and then provides instruction on how to live. Be holy for I am holy, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Be holy and show the nations who I am. Moses, an instrument of God's rescuing, leads the Israelites out of physical bondage in Egypt. Yet he is a mere shadow, a pale precursor to the one who leads God's people out of eternal spiritual bondage and sin, Jesus Christ, the one who came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and to set the oppressed free. This is a story of rescue and freedom a story of God's desire to dwell with his people, a story of grace upon grace. Welcome to GCC. Like Rick said, uh, we exist to make Jesus the hero, and that's the hope uh, this morning through preaching. If you don't know me, my name is Brad Leibolt. I'm one of the pastors here. Yeah, and it, like Rick said, this is his dream job. I'm pretty sure this is mine too. Pretty confident. Uh, I love getting to, like you said, love and serve our church family and especially uh, get to preach. This is a lot of fun. So uh, we're jumping back into Exodus. We've been preaching through Exodus for a while now. We took a break uh, to do a series on money. And then we had Palm Sunday and Easter. So we've had about six weeks off of Exodus, so a little bit of breathing room. Uh, And now we're jumping back into the book in chapter 25. We're get, jumping into the book of Exodus at the part where if you're doing like a, if you've ever done a read through the Bible in a year plan, this is the part where you probably fall off uh, because it gets really boring. If we're being honest, uh, you get through Genesis and there's lots of fun stories and crazy things happening. The beginning of Exodus is a lot of fun with the plagues and God's power. And then when you get to the 10 commandments and that's a lot of fun as well. You're familiar with that. You get to Exodus chapter 25 and you get about four or five chapters of instructions for uh, the tabernacle, building this, this mobile tent that the Israelites were supposed to construct in the desert. You get instructions for the priestly garments and this, these kinds of things. And there's all these dimensions and all these stones and gems and colors. And it's like, this is not what I signed up for. Where's the fun stuff? And so uh, my goal today, my hope today is that we bring a little bit of life to these uh, chapters that can be maybe a little bit tedious when we get to them in our Bible. Uh, They are important. We're not going to read all of it. That would take a while, and I want you all to stay awake for at least a little bit of time. Um, But we'll try to hopefully bring some clarity to what is the purpose of the tabernacle? Why do these chapters matter? Why are they here in our Bible? And so if you have a Bible, open it up to Exodus chapter 25. 
This is kind of the beginning of the third movement of Exodus. Exodus kind of has three movements. The first is God versus Pharaoh with the plagues and delivering the Israelites from slavery and bondage. The second movement is Israel at Sinai where God enters into a covenant with them. Uh, And then this third movement, the last kind of section of the book deals largely with the tabernacle and there's some narrative uh, woven in there as well. But it's a lot about setting up the tabernacle, this tent where God's presence is going to dwell with his people. So if you're there in Exodus 25, I'm going to open this up in a word of prayer. We'll dive in. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your love for us. Uh, And thank you for your word. God, you did not have to reveal yourself to us in any kind of special way. You did not have to disclose things about yourself to your creation. Yet in your grace, you have given us your word, these words, the Bible that communicate truth about who you are, about who we are, and about what you've done to rescue and save us and deliver us from our sin and to be, uh, to be your people for eternity. So God, I pray that your word would speak to us this morning. Uh, that through it and through these chapters that uh, might seem so foreign and, and uh, different uh, to us, that you would use them to uh, reveal some of yourself to us, that we would leave here today not, uh, not, un, uh, not knowing uh, what or who you are and what you've done for us. God, I pray that the gospel is really clear, uh, that the good news of what Jesus has done for us would, would resonate in all of our hearts. Uh, for those who do not yet know you and are exploring what this whole Christianity thing is about, God, I pray that you'd be convicting hearts and drawing people to yourself. Uh, use me, God. Uh, I pray that you would speak through me and use this time for your glory and our benefit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, how many of you have seen the show Alone? What am I working with here? Okay, the show Alone is, uh, I think it's technically reality TV. Reality TV is when the people are real, right? So... I think it's reality TV, but uh, it's a, uh, like a survival show, and uh, there's like nine or ten seasons. Some of them differ a little bit, but the general idea is they take ten people, and they drop them off in the wilderness in some very remote location, and they're, they're separated from each other far enough that they'll never interact or cross paths. The goal is just survive as long as you can, being alone. They have uh, ten items that they get to take with them. They have to find their own food. Uh, water, shelter, they have to survive the cold, they have to survive predators, all this kind of stuff. And the only there's two ways you lose or you, you stop competing in the game. Uh, the first is if you fail a medical, they do periodic medical exams to make sure you're not going to die out there. They'll take you out if that is likely. Or you can tap out. You can just decide that you're going to be done, can't take it anymore, you tap out. And pe- people last in the show for months. I mean, like 70, 80, 90 days just alone in the wilderness, braving the cold, the bears, uh, eating raw rabbits and squirrels and foraging for berries. They lose 20 to 40 pounds in the first few weeks. It's pretty uh, brutal, but it's also fascinating uh, to watch them lose their minds as they spend time alone in the wilderness. Uh, some uh, alone nerds ran and some statistics on the number one or the rank the reasons why people drop out of the show. Number one reason is uh, like a sudden unexpected injury or illness. So someone eats a parasite and then they get sick and they can't make it anymore, or they get a fish hook in the hand in their hand, or they accidentally shoot themselves with their bow and arrow or something. Something uh, uh, that is unexpected takes them out of the game. The second reason why people tap out of the game is uh, because they miss their family or they're lonely. That's why the show is called Alone. It's not called Survive. Uh, it's not called uh, Run From Bears or anything like that. It's called Alone because it's, it's a, a test of how long can a human stand being alone with no contact to the outside world, no uh, loved ones, friends, or family. 
uh, to talk to or to be there with them. I think, it's, I think it's a fascinating concept and a fascinating show because I think it highlights something uh, very unique and important about us as humans, and that's that we are not made to be alone. We were not designed, we were not created to live in isolation. We were not made to be uh, isolated from other people, and ultimately what we would say as Christians is that we were not made to be isolated from God. We were actually created for relationship created for relationship with our creator, God, and then also relationship with one another. Some of us might be a little more introverted or like our alone time. That's fair. That all fits, fits in here uh, with what we're talking about. Over the long haul, generally speaking, we're not created to be alone. And yet for many of us, we feel lonely. We feel disconnected, uh, struggle in relationships to be known or to feel like we know one another. We can be in a room full of people who know our name and yet feel very alone. And so there's this disconnect with what we were created for and then how oftentimes we feel. I think this disconnect is due to sin, a result of the fall. God's intention was that we would be in perfect relationship with him and one another without sin messing up or affecting any of that. And yet, because of sin, our relationship with God is fractured, broken, and our relationship with one another is fractured and broken as well. God's good design was that he would dwell with his people and that we would live in, live in and enjoy his life-giving presence, and there would be an intimate relationship between the creator and creation. But because of sin, because of our rebellion against him, we were separated from him, and something has to happen. Something needs to be done to reunite us with God. And today we see God do something about this problem. Today we see God provide his presence for his people. That's the main point of this morning, uh, if you're a note taker, that God's greatest provision is his presence. God's greatest provision is his presence. We've titled this series, Grace Upon Grace, because we recognize that God deals with his people through the mode of grace. Grace is a one-way love. It is, it is an un, it's unconditional favor, unconditional gift giving. And we see God loved his people in this way over and over and over again. He rescues them from slavery by grace. He provides for them in the wilderness by grace. He enters into a covenant relationship with them by grace. He gives them laws and commands to be obedient to by grace. And now we see his greatest provision, the provision that all these other provisions were leading his people towards, and that's his own very presence. The tabernacle was meant to be a place where God's presence dwelled with his people, which is what we were created to do, is live with God. Now, it's, it's presence, but it's an imperfect presence. It's imperfect because it, it, there is, it leaves you wanting something more. And so what the tabernacle does is it causes us to look back at what God's ideal was, and then it causes us to look forward to something greater. And so we're going to see both of those things. We're going to look back, and we're going to look forward. So if you, you're open to Exodus 25, let's read uh, the first nine verses of Exodus 25. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood. Oil for the lamps. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle 
and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. God commands Moses to take a contribution from the people. These people left Egypt with all kinds of goods, with all kinds of uh, treasure and things. And now that they're out in the wilderness, they're to give some of that to Moses and, and to the priests to build and construct this tabernacle. And it's all this list of precious metals and, and gemstones and, and skin for curtains and these kinds of things. And then in verse 8, God, we get the purpose for all of this. We get the purpose for the tabernacle. And I want to kind of hone in on this verse here because there's two really key, really important words. Verse eight says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The two words I want to look at here are sanctuary and dwell. The word sanctuary is the Hebrew word mikdosh, which comes from the word kadosh, which means holy. So sanctuary, it's not just a, a, a normal tent or, or dwelling place or anything like that. It's a holy place. There, there's, there's something holy about this, this sanctuary that he's asking them to construct. And then the other word dwell, the Hebrew word there, means to dwell in a tent. So it's a very earthly word. So you have kind of a heavenly word that has holy implications mixed with an earthly word that is, is more human and, 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 uh, and present and real here. Not that holiness and heaven aren't real. Hopefully you get what I mean there. And this is intentional. It's make me a holy sanctuary so that I can dwell in a tent with you on earth. Make me a heavenly dwelling place on earth. The point is an overlap between the two. An overlap between heaven and earth. This is very intentional because it's meant to reflect the Garden of Eden. It's meant to reflect God's original creation ideal. Where heaven and earth overlapped where God dwelt with humanity, where humanity had access to God's presence. The tabernacle is designed to be a mini model of Eden, where God is providing his presence for his people. There's other, other notes that are to make us think about this. Maybe you remember when we read in verse 7, it mentions onyx stones. Uh, onyx stones are only mentioned when talking about two different things in all of the Old Testament. The Garden of Eden. Genesis 2, there's a river flowing where there was onyx, stone, and gold, and the construction of the tabernacle. Only two places. So when you read onyx stones and the instructions for building the tabernacle, your mind is thinking back to Eden, where this, pla- this place where this stone existed. The other clue uh, we're to think of Eden when we are reading about the tabernacle is the way it was designed. And I think we have a picture. Yes, okay. It's kind of small. Zach was like, that's the worst diagram of the tabernacle I've ever seen. <laughs> There's a lot to choose from. This seemed the most simple. So uh, the point here, so you have three spaces in the tabernacle. There's the outer court, which had uh, the altar for burnt sacrifice and then a basin with water in it. You have the holy place or the inner court, uh, which had a table with bread on it. It had uh, the altar of incense, and then it had uh, the menorah or the lampstand. And then at the middle of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies or the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. There was curtains or veils that separated each of these sections. But the point is there's three sections, and the more you move in, the closer you get to God's presence, right? In Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we get a description of the Garden of Eden. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So it's subtle here. We often refer to the garden of Eden, and here it's the garden in Eden. So 
picture this, there's the land of Eden. Within the land of Eden is the garden. And in the garden is the midst or the middle of the garden where the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil are. Again, these three concentric circles and in the middle, you're getting closer and closer to the presence of God. The design of the tabernacle was intentionally meant to reflect that three-tiered design of the garden. You say, great, Brad, this is cool, you nerd. What is the point of this? Why does this even matter? The point is that God wants to be with his people. God's intention all along has been to dwell with his people, to live among his people. This was the ideal in the garden, and we lost that because of sin. But God is trying to recreate that through the tabernacle, a mini Eden, a mini garden, another place where his presence dwells. Uh, we, we hear this phrase a lot. I am I'm certain, I tried to go back and remember, I'm certain I've said something like this from, from the pulpit or the music stand uh, here at GCC. I know I've said it in the past. This is a common phrase that we hear within Christianity. Something along the lines of, God can't be in the presence of sin, or sinful people can't be in the presence of a holy God. And I think that this is kind of true. I think it's, but not fully true. And let me explain. I do think it is very dangerous for sinful people to be in the presence of a holy God. But I don't think it's impossible. Because the story of the Bible is a holy God continually moving towards sinful people. The tabernacle is a holy God placing his holy presence in the midst of a sinful people. And we look even forward more when a holy God becomes a man in Jesus Christ and sits with sinners and tax collectors and eats and drinks with them and is in the midst of sinful people, a holy God in human form. So, so I, I just bring that up because I think sometimes we can assume that, there's, uh, that this, there is a, certainly a separation between a holy God and sinful people, and it's very dangerous for sinful people to be in the presence of a holy God. But don't let that make you think that this holy God wants nothing to do with sinful people. This, sinful pe- this holy God wants everything to do with sinful people and does everything in his power to make that possible. The tabernacle is pointing us or showing us his desire and intention to do just that. The tabernacle, as we look back, the tabernacle is a recreation of Eden because Eden was the ideal where God dwelled with his people and his people enjoyed God's presence. And now with God's new covenant people, the Israelites, we're we're trying to get back to that ideal. But it also causes us to look forward. Because as much as the tabernacle is meant to make us think of Eden, there are a lot of differences. There's no altar where sacrifices are being made in Eden. There's no no menorah lampstand. There's no table full of bread. There's not curtains. So so we look back and think, yes, it's supposed to be that way, but it's definitely still not that. There's something wrong. There's there's something else. And so we look forward to see what the tabernacle is pointing us towards. God's desire is to dwell with humanity, but there's a problem. Humanity. Humanity is the problem. Humanity's sin is the problem. And so the tabernacle and everything in it, all of the furniture and everything in it is set up to deal with Israel's sin. The furniture of the tabernacle, we're not going to, like I said, we're not going to read through 25 through 27, but you can read through how they made the Ark of the Covenant. You can read through how they designed the table for the showbread. You can read through how they designed the golden lampstand. You can read about the curtains and all this kind of stuff. Just know that those things were necessary to deal with the people's sin. For God's holy presence to dwell in their midst, their sin had to be dealt with, and it required a lot of blood. 
sacrifices, animal sacrifices had to be made in order for this whole thing to work because sin requires death because sin kills the wages of sin is death. And so in order for God and man to be reunited, that sin has to be taken care of and death is the only way to take care of it. Shed blood is the only way to. And so the tabernacle is, is, is starting to get at this, this Eden ideal, but it leaves us wanting because of these sacrifices that have to be made and this veil that separates the presence of God from his people until Jesus comes along. In John chapter one, we have this incredible passage of scripture. We'll read the first three verses, and then we'll jump down to 14. It says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. John is talking about Jesus. When when you read the word word, he's talking about Jesus. The word was in the beginning. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. There's two categories here. Everything that was made and then the one that made everything. And the word is in the category of the one who made everything. Okay. Jesus is God. Verse 14, John chapter one, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So God, the creator, the one who was in the beginning, who made everything became flesh, became part of his creation And then the word there dwelt is literally the word tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled among us. God came to live and dwell among his people in the form, in the person of Jesus. And so when we see Jesus, we see the glory of God. See the, the tabernacle points us to Christ because it is in Christ where heaven and earth overlap. It is in the second person of the Trinity, God, the son, Jesus Christ come to earth where we see heaven and earth overlap, where God's full glorious presence is available to sinful people. It is Jesus who brings Eden to us in his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is the greater tabernacle. And you could go through each of the, the, the things within the tabernacle. And Jesus is the greater that as well. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the water of life. Jesus is the light of the world. And Jesus is the once and for all atoning sacrifice that deals with and cleanses us from our sin. Heaven and earth are reunited and God dwells among his people through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then on the cross where Jesus is, is, is hanging, being punished for the sins of the world, we're told in the gospels that the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. The veil that separates man from God, the veil that separates us and prevents us from being in the presence we were created to be in is torn and removed. As Jesus' flesh is torn on the cross, as Jesus pours out his life and gives up his life, the temple is opened up and all of us can, all who come to him in faith can experience the presence of God through Christ. It said sin requires death. The wages of sin is death. In order for sin to be dealt with, blood has to be shed. The blood of bulls and goats was never enough. Had to be done year after year, day after day. But Jesus's blood is sufficient. It's a once and for all, all time sacrifice that deals with sin for eternity 
so that sinful man is no longer sinful man. But we can, become, we can come into the presence of a holy God, counted righteous, justified because of what Christ has done. Now, here's where it gets cool, if it, you don't think it is already. Now, God's presence dwells in you and me. There's, there's no longer a need for a tabernacle. There's no longer a need for a temple. God showed up in Jesus, merging heaven and earth and bringing Eden to us, saves us from our sin, and then leaves and sends us the Holy Spirit and says, now you're a temple. Now you're a tabernacle. My presence now lives within you. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says it like this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Where does God live? Where does God's presence dwell now? In the new temple. What's that? The church. Us. When God's people gather together who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, this is where God's presence lives. He's in our midst. The presence of a holy God, where heaven and earth now overlap, is in these kingdom outposts all over the world that we call churches, where believers come together and dwell with the Spirit to worship Him and then take that presence out to the world around us. And we do this until the day Jesus returns and creates a new, fully overlapping heaven and earth. In Revelation 21, it says this, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is future. This is what's to come. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's what we look forward to. A better Eden with no sin, no opportunity to be kicked out, because sin has been dealt with. Jesus has paid the price for that. And we're brought into a new heavens and a new earth where God dwells with us. We're his people and he is our God. God's greatest provision, not just for the Israelites, but for us is his presence. And he provides his presence to us through Christ. And now we have a responsibility as the church to provide that same presence to the world as we minister the gospel to our neighbors and coworkers and friends. The goal of the Christian life is fellowship with God. We enjoy that now through Christ, and one day we'll enjoy it fully in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, what I kind of just did is what we would call biblical theology. Biblical theology is the discipline of tracing a theme through scripture, seeing how that theme develops over time. And so if God's presence is a theme in scripture, we see that in the garden, We see it come up again in the tabernacle. We see how Jesus provides that and it culminates in him. And we see how that ultimately culminates in the new heavens and the new earth. And this is great. This helps us understand our Bibles, but it also affects our life. There's there's practical implications for a theology of God's presence here and now in our life. And there's lots of implications. I want to just talk about three. And hopefully one of them connects with how you walked in here this morning. The first implication for the fact that God's presence dwells in our lives here and now today is holy living in regards to our bodies. Get this from 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Paul is talking about fleeing sexual immorality and pay attention to the reason he gives to do this. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, 
whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. One motivation for not sinning with our bodies is recognizing that our bodies are a temple that houses the, the living God. The presence of God lives within us. Our bodies are a temple. And so if we profane or neglect or mistreat that temple, what does that say about what we think about the presence living inside of it? Now you can err the other way. There's kind of a, there's two ditches we can fall into here. One is neglect of the body or mistreatment of the body uh, through uh, sexual morality or gluttony or slothfulness. The other ditch we can fall into is worship of the body, obsession of the body. Rather than neglecting the body, we can pour all of our time and resources and energy into trying to shape our body, viewing our body as the glorious thing rather than the presence of God that dwells within it. And so the presence of God speaks to both and keeps us from falling into either ditch. Don't neglect your body. Don't mistreat your body. It's a temple of the living God, but also don't worship your body because it's not your own. It's someone else's now. You've been bought with a price. So what you do in your body should bring glory to God and not to yourself. So our bodies matter. They're God's temple now, but our bodies also aren't our own. And so don't worship it. Second implication for the presence of God in our lives that I think is important is courage or fearlessness. This comes from Isaiah 41:10. Fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Ian read the great commission earlier. When Jesus tells his apostles to go into the world, he says, I'll be with you. That's the, that's the promise. That's the hope. That's what gives us courage. We've been called to a lot of difficult things as followers of Christ. Jesus says that following me is like, like picking up your cross, which means you die day after day after day to your dreams, your hopes, your desires, your wants. That's not easy. And so the things that we face that, that we've been called to as followers of Christ are difficult, but we can have courage. We can be fearless because of God's presence in our lives. This, this gives us courage. It also gives us humility because notice in this verse, God will strengthen us. God will help us. God will uphold us. And so any success in what God's called you to do is his success. So courage and humility because of God's presence in our lives. And lastly, comfort. Second Corinthians one, three through four says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. If a word is repeated, in a passage of scripture, it's probably important. And he says comfort about eight times there. Psalm 34 tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. So I, I don't know, I don't know how you walked in here this morning. I don't know what kind of uh, baggage you brought through those doors. Uh, I know you're human. And so I know you have something. Maybe you came in this morning and are feeling convicted about the neglect, misuse or abuse of God's temple, your body. Maybe you came in fearful of sharing the gospel with someone or confessing a sin that you've been holding on to for a long time. And the presence of God gives you courage to do those difficult things. And maybe you came in this morning brokenhearted, downtrodden, weary, tired, and you just need God's presence to comfort you. That's okay too. 
So I, I don't know. I don't know what you came in with this morning, but I do know that whatever it is, God's presence in your life speaks to it. God's presence in your life matters. And so maybe you just need to fall at the feet of a loving father, have him wrap his arms around you and comfort you. Maybe that's what God's presence means for you today. Uh, Maybe you've heard this. I'm going to share some statistics here, and they're honestly shocking. Um, but we're, uh, we're facing what some people are calling a, fatherless, a fatherlessness, a fatherless crisis in our country. 43% of children in the United States live right now without their father. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of children who show behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. 85% of all youth in prison come from fatherless homes. Girls specifically who live in fatherless homes are 711% more likely to have children as teenagers, 164% more likely to have children before marriage, and 92% more likely to get divorced themselves. The presence of a father matters. I'm a deeply flawed and imperfect father to my children, and I am am impatient and short and lazy, and yet the simple fact that I'm in their life has massive implications. And if if, if my presence as a flawed and imperfect father in my kid's life matters, how much more, how much more does the presence of a perfect heavenly father matter in the lives of his children. A presence that we don't have to wait for him to get off work to show up. A presence that we don't have to fear uh, lashing out in anger or impatience. A presence that we don't have to fear ever going away. God promises to never leave or forsake us, and he does not go back on his promises. God's greatest provision for us is his presence. You will be restless until you find rest in him in a relationship with the God who made you. He's provided access to his presence through Jesus. The, the, the one true tabernacle whose flesh was torn so that we could have access to God. And for all who come to faith in Christ, that presence will never leave you never forsake you. God is with you here and now. That matters. That changes everything. Changes the present. It changes the future. And know that your heavenly father loves you, is delighted in you, is pleased with you, and there is nothing you could ever do or no thing that you could never do enough of that would change that and make him run away. His greatest provision is his his presence. He's provided that to us definitively once and for all in Christ. And because of that, we can be secure in what he's done for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, your presence. Thank you for providing it for us in Christ. God, I pray that however we walked in here this morning, whatever things we're struggling with, whatever uh, pain we're experiencing, whatever frustrations, sin, God, whatever it is, I pray now, that we would run to you, that that we would believe that you are here, that you are present, that you love us, that you care, 
and that that's not going away. God, thank you for providing a way for us to be back in a relationship with you through Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.